And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. And I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we're reading Alatsue by Darcy Little Badger. Harmony, what do you think of this book? What did I think of this book? I really enjoyed it a lot. This is not the most relevant thing to the book, but it's really refreshing whenever I read a YA book and there's like an asexual main character. That wasn't something that I grew up reading because it wasn't something that was talked about a lot uh, when I was a teenager. So I'm really appreciate when that's like subtly in the narrative of any story because then I can go ahead and recommend it to my teens because a lot of my teens are even if they don't identify as asexual really not interested in some of the more romance heavy aspects of YA literature. I think that that's a great aspect of this book too. This is a really important novel I think just because it brings Lapan Apache tribal mythology kind of into the mainstream a little bit but from an own voices author from an author who is also of the Lapanapathy tribe so you know that what's being brought forth is appropriate to be consumed by those of us who aren't an indigenous and I think it's really lovely to just see an indigenous main character who is so kick-ass and this whole book follows Alatsue or Ellie who is trying to solve the untimely murder of her cousin Trevor. Her, in this in this sort of world, everybody's ancestral magic is true. So in her family, Ellie has the, or I shouldn't say true, everybody's ancestral magic is like tangibly real in a way that everybody can see even if they're outside the culture. So Ellie, for example, her family has the ability to talk to and raise and see ghosts from the dead, primarily animal ghosts, because when it happens with humans, things get a little bit sketchy, shall we say. But then, for example, her kind of partner in crime slash sidekick Jay is of Irish descent. And so his family's magic is all about the fae and like being descended from King Oberon and she calls him baby Oberon and things like that. So that's sort of the setting that we're working with here. And then Ellie and Jay are trying to solve Trevor's murder. And it's a really, I think heartfelt book about this kid trying to do what's right and trying to do what's right without necessarily going behind her parents back but also definitely going behind the backs of law enforcement a little bit and I think just trying to carve a path in the world that has been so shaped by colonialism and trying to stay true to herself and her culture and her values um, while also I think actively fighting a big baddie who is very much like the metaphorical epitome of Capital colonial, capitalist colonialism in the 21st century. That was not my most put together summary, but hopefully we can piece something good out of that. <laughs> no, I think that was that was basically everything. One of the things I also really appreciated about this book is the fact that we could tangibly see everyone's ancestral mythology, folklore, magic, and it was interesting to me, and I enjoyed. 
I think the fact that this book was a little bit more realistic and dealing that we didn't live in a world where racism just didn't exist or where colonialism didn't exist. Because Ellie repeatedly throughout this book in big and small ways with microaggressions and then also big conspiracies throughout the book tangibly deals with colonialism. And that happens, but the Lapan Apache people aren't the only ones with magic here. As Maggie pointed out, everyone has some sort of ancestral lineage. And to me, like, as a graduate student or somebody who was recently a graduate student, I found that a very interesting choice because it seemed reminiscent of some, even though Maggie and I aren't experts on land back theory, it seemed reminiscent of some of what's talked about in terms of land back theory and understanding different people's cultures and heritage because these different power structures were all allowed to coexist within one world, even though in different ways in which they encroached on one another. And it seemed reminiscent to me of what First Nations in the U.S. probably looked like right? Because there were all of these different cultural groups and what it seems like a lot of indigenous theorists and scholars seem to be trying to push us back towards this idea that like, hey, we all have our own individual cultures and identities and you have your own individual culture and identity. And if we can like accept that and work with that, we might be able to coexist together in a more ethical way. I love that, especially between Ellie and her friendships throughout the novel, especially her friendship with Jay, who becomes, I think, kind of like her best friend throughout the novel, which is really sweet. And her relationship with his family, who end up being really helpful as she's kind of taking on the big baddie at the end. I also love how, and I think YA as a genre, generally speaking, is moving away from this trope a little bit. But a lot of the YA I read when I was in that age group was like, the parents were either non-existent for magical reasons and or they were just they didn't care and they were just really detached and like the protagonist was able to go out and do whatever they wanted I thought it was really refreshing to see an adventurous contemporary with some fantasy elements novel that's about solving a murder have Ellie's parents so deeply involved and kind of have their sign off on this And I'm sure that this is probably based in a cultural difference, or potentially this is based in a cultural difference as well. Um, But it was really lovely to see that Ellie was open to how her parents wanted to go about this. But then equally as lovely to see that Ellie's parents, as much as they were, I think, occasionally and understandably kind of frightened by the level of her power, which was really strong compared to a lot of other people in her family. She's, she's, I think is sort of uh, one of the most powerful uh, workers of this magic since her sixth grade, who she's named after and who's also kind of another thread in this story, but they also believe her the entire time and they give her the agency to go out and do what she needs to do and to learn what she needs to learn. And they do it with lovingly set boundaries so that she's not just kind of, running out into the absolute most dangerous situations constantly. But there was that really, really lovely element of communication as well that I think just really deepened this novel for me. I enjoyed that too. This is oversimplified, right? Because I am a white 
colonizer descendant. <laughs> but to me, I, I think that we keep seeing this more and more in pop culture, like with all of our latest Disney fix, right? This idea of family as community. And it does feel, even as a white colonizer descendant, like it feels really refreshing to me and very healthy to see our young protagonists grappling with different aspects of their family and having supportive families and having them be a part of that narrative. And I do... I, in my very oversimplified view, I do see a link between that and then like pushing up against colonial values, right? Because in the United States and the UK, we have been very singular family unit. And even though we only really meet Ellie's father and mother in this story, you can tell that with Jay's family, like they are also a part of her her family's community, right? You can tell when they're talking about their ancestors that there is a larger lineage here and a larger community. And I think too, maybe maybe that idea of us growing up and and leaving our families behind might be a product of white colonialism in some capacity that is probably a very big oversimplification. But I do, I think I see those connections and it's just refreshing to see people be like, no, you can have a family, a loving family unit and you can grow up and have this support in this community behind you. Because as a 27 year old, as somebody who is growing up, what I keep discovering as I I push through different societal success markers is that it's impossible to do these things alone, right? So like, it's impossible to really grow up without having some sort of community and some sort of support and love there. And I think too, in America, in the United States, we really see communities of color embrace that a little bit more because they have to, whereas white people can just throw money at the problem generally speaking. Not to overgeneralize, but yeah. <laughs> so that's my very simplified view of that. I also found the family interactions interesting and useful in this book too, though, because I think this book does a really good job of not pushing a narrative in which teens have to like become adults. As somebody that works with teens, I felt like this was a way more realistic experience to a lot of teens and like their real lives and every days are like, and I was kind of a young person who thought of myself as an adult, right, and wanted to grow up fast. But this story still felt more realistic to me in terms of like how Ellie was approaching things and how, and what her main concerns were beyond the murder, which is a very big adult thing, but in her everyday interactions than somebody on Gossip Girl or even reading the Gemma Doyle's trilogy, even though that took place in a different time and so there were different expectations. So... I don't know. I think I really appreciated that aspect too. And I hope to see more of that in young adult literature, this idea that yes, you were growing up, but you were still a kid and that's okay. Did you sense that at all? And and am I, what, what do you think of my interpretation and what are your interpretations? You said a lot of really good things there. I think that one thing that really strikes me is that you're right, at least in that my experience of white culture in the United States is very conditioned to think of like you're a kid and then you're 18 and you're kind of an adult and you leave the house and you do all of these things and not that everybody follows this path but the general societal push is really follows that especially in the in pop culture and what you're conditioned for in high school in the sense that like 
a lot of people are going to think about or maybe try and go to college or some other secondary education. And if people choose a different path than that, which is a completely valid experience, they're often looked down upon or things like that. Millennials, I think, at large, faced a lot of pushback from older generations, older white generations, because they stayed at home a lot longer with their families because life was really shitty (laughs) in 2008. And a lot of people graduated college and that narrative about how to become an adult really fell apart. And I think that this book is a very anti-colonial pushback to that. And I think that a lot of my understanding, which is obviously very limited, is that a lot of cultures outside of white culture in the U.S., don't think like that. And it's very like you leave the house when you're ready and you can come back after college if you choose to take that path. And it's much, much less like independence focused. I think so much of colonialism that we don't, or at least I didn't necessarily think about often is how individually focused and individually centered it is. And Harmony and I have started to talk about that a bit on the podcast for the past couple of years. And that was one of the things that really made me think that the power of capitalism And the power of colonialism is to try and isolate you from your communities. So I loved seeing a a different answer to that in this book. I think as well, something I really enjoyed is that it's not just, it's not just the sense of a, a character acting appropriately her age, because I think that that's totally true. And that Ellie feels very like 17 in the right ways in this book. Good gracious. Sorry, y'all. It's uh, before 8 a.m. when we're recording. (laughs) My voice hasn't totally woken up yet. And she fits into her family narrative. And she also wrestles with the fact that Sixth Grade did so many of her fantastic things when she was younger than Ellie was. And that Sixth Grade was doing X, Y, and Z when she was 12. And then her family pushes up against that. And her family pushes up against that and says, well, sixth grade lived in a much different time. Sixth grade lived, you know, at a time right right as colonial culture was invading the United States, was uh, as white people were actively committing genocide. Different things pushed sixth grade to have to be in a more mature, more adult role at the age of 12, you know, and you were able to have that childhood. And now she's starting to take on these more responsibilities. But I think, too, one thing that I was thinking throughout this book was like, Ellie has such a strong sense of her lineage and where she's come from, not not even just culturally, but also within her family and her extended family. And I was thinking about it in terms of my own life because we're all selfish and we <laughs> and, and we connect to things from our own experiences. But like I was thinking about it and especially as a white person in the U.S., I probably could find out really well, like what my ancestry is and where my people came from and what they were up to before they came here. But I don't know. I know lots about my grandparents. I I knew three of the four of them. I know a decent about about my Romanian great grandparents, but that's partially because my muma was alive when I was a small child and I knew her and I remember her and I have a lot of understanding about that. But I don't know that much about even my great grandparents, let, let alone my great great grandparents and like the cultural difference too, I think. Or maybe just the different experience between Ellie in this book and me in my life between um, having your family knowledge be so valued and your family's story and your family's history being so valued and having so much to teach you because 
and this is like no knock against my parents or my family in any way, but just like that wasn't valued as much, I think, when I was growing up. Um, and I don't know that much about the people who came before my grandparents or uh, in one case, my great grandparents, you know, and I could go and find all that information if I wanted to, but it probably it wouldn't hold the same cultural weight and cultural value as if those stories were kept and treasured and that knowledge was passed down to us when. I was ready. I totally get that. Yeah, this isn't related to the book at all. But yeah, no, I totally get that as a as a white person, especially because my parents very deliberately kind of divorced themselves from their cultures and, and their parents, even though we didn't really have much of a culture to begin with. But even talking to my grandparents and stuff, like it doesn't seem, it seems, I wouldn't even know like where to start with the family lineage thing, even though I'm white and like my ancestors likely weren't enslaved in any capacity. And so I probably could trace it back. But even having grandparents that are alive, I would not know how to even begin or what questions to ask because my family just didn't value that. Or at the very least, my direct family didn't value it because they were so traumatized by the nuclear family model that has been uh, forced upon all of us and so divorced themselves from it. But I did, I, I valued that too. And that was that was, I think, including that and seeing seeing how that can be used in different capacities right like through the character of jay and through our big bad dr aldman so we see through jay and dr aldman we both see this example of familial knowledge and and magic being passed through white generations right and we see that jay uses his magic and generally pretty neutrally versus dr aldman who uses it to oppress people and not just indigenous people he uses it to oppress people who are poor or otherwise marginalized in some capacity capacity. And we also see this a little bit when we're talking about the curse. So in this story, if you haven't read it, though, I really hope you have because we're completely spoiling it for you. There are vampires and vampirism, it's kind of hinted at being stigmatized. They do lust for blood, but it's also kind of implied like you can be a vampire and live a ethical-ish life. Like you can be a vampire without hurting anyone. So we see this these examples of people who take this disease and run with it and and use it to do bad things and to kind of dehumanize themselves a little bit in their actions. But we also have a character, his name is Al. Yeah, his name is Al and he's Ronnie's fiance. And Ronnie is Jay's sister, also very close friends with Ellie. We see through Al, like, an example of a vampire who is just a person who is cursed and who wants to keep this part of himself, in in particular because he suffered from some chronic health issues before he got the curse, and the curse makes him more physically strong and makes him feel better physically. So, like, we we see how that curse doesn't dehumanize him. How, like, these things don't have to dehumanize us. And kind of along those lines, I want to talk a little bit about Dr. Alberman and his role as a villain, because something the book made sure to do was to kind of delve a little bit into why he was doing some evil actions. And it doesn't come from a place of cruelty, even though it's cruel. You know, it comes from from selfishness. Like in his head, we get to see he's very blatant about his motivations. And his whole thing is like, I'm going to protect my family and put them above everyone else. And I felt like that was 
a really well done metaphor in a in a pretty easy accessible book that's like aimed at teenagers, right? A really well done metaphor for kind of white colonialist thought, at least today. Maybe not in the past, but like how it is progressed today. Because he really thinks that he is an okay guy and he's responsible for Ellie's cousin's Trevor's murder. But he thinks it's okay because he set aside money for Trevor's son and like tried to see that Trevor's family was going to be okay afterwards. And Ellie's like, no, he murdered Trevor because he was trying to save himself. And Ellie's like, no, like you were the one dying. You don't get to take somebody else's life to continue your own. I I don't know. I felt like that was very interesting. And I want to know your thoughts about it, Maggie. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I guess to expand upon it a little bit more, I think it also has to do with how everybody in this book views their magic. So Jay and Ronnie have to be really, or choose to be, I should say, really cognizant about how they're using their magic. Because if they use too much of it, it has a negative environmental impact. So Ronnie really chooses to divorce herself from that fame magic because she doesn't necessarily want to be part of that. Jay uses it in ways that are, he feels ethical and he uses the, the, the fairy circles in moments where he feels like it's important and appropriate to be kind of burning that energy, right? So they think about that from a sense of personal responsibility. I think that Ellie views the use of her magic as not just a personal responsibility, but also a cultural and family responsibility. It's more of a gift that she's been bestowed and she has a duty to learn how to use it appropriately and learn how to be its steward and how to protect that secret, but also use it for the good and betterment and benefit of all. And then on the flip side of that is Dr. Aldman, whose family legacy of magic is that his magic is literally power. We talk about magic powers all the time, but I mean this in like very literal, tangible, colonial capitalist power, right? Where Nathaniel Grace founded this town, and as his descendant, it's Dr. Altman's job now to continue that legacy of oppression, to continue that legacy of what is in his mind a kind of a warped, twisted way, that same stewardship by keeping the town correct for him and his kin and his kith and his family instead of thinking about how to keep and protect the town as betterment for all. So how everybody thinks about their magic and whether they think of it as power versus responsibility and duty, I think is one of the most powerful metaphors in this book to talk about white colonial culture and culture that values personal power and societal power over a lot of other things like the betterment of community and thinking holistically about how we all can participate, right? There's this moment in the book too where Ellie has the power to make her cousin-in-law, I guess, Lenore's pain go away because Lenore just wants Trevor to come back and Lenore knows that Ellie has the power to make him come back and Ellie has to have a really difficult conversation with her to say it's different with humans when we bring humans back they are shades of anger and sadness 
it will not be your Trevor. And as much as there's part of her that wishes that could be different, as much as there's part of her that probably really wants to be able to bring her cousin back because he's also her cousin and and she loves him too. She has to set that boundary. She can't be selfish. She can't unleash something upon the earth to ease that moment of pain for both herself and for Lenore. And I think that to me, that scene really sets the tone about understanding one's role in in society and in community and knowing that not to go star wars on this but you know with great power comes great responsibility and it is our duty to think about how we how we wield this uh power that we have in a responsible and appropriate ways that don't just better us but also better our community and thinking holistically i was totally with you until you misattributed that quote Maggie, your nerd culture is very off. I don't know anything about pop culture. I don't know anything about pop culture. I've only seen three of the Star Wars movies. It's Spider-Man. That comes from Spider-Man, Maggie. I haven't seen any of those movies, so hey. Oh my goodness. Um, okay. Yeah, thank you for expanding on that. I think that's a really great point. This idea of how we think about our power and framing it as responsibility versus stewardship and to kind of make that a little bit more concrete and simplified for my language and maybe any listeners who need it more concrete and simplified. I think that's important, right? Because we know that a lot of First Nations cultures, a lot of Indigenous cultures viewed themselves as like stewards of their environments and land, at least That's what I've gathered from people who are from various cultures and sharing their knowledge now. Whereas we know that a lot of white cultures uh, viewed their responsibility as like becoming king, as becoming powerful, as like fighting for for something, right? And against against the land, against other people, so that their kin could live on. So that's really interesting to me. And to if if you have it, it might be worth listening to our, you know, kind of simplified understanding of indigenous anarchism and our episode on that, because one of the big standouts for me during that episode was this idea of asserting one culture as dominant and how harmful that is and how that is what white colonialism has done. And I really think we see that play out in this book from Dr. Alderman and from the town that he's stewarding. There's a line in the book that very directly says, where Dr. Alderman says that like, we are of no land, but all land is ours or something like that. I'm paraphrasing, but it's crazy. And it's like, oh yeah, that's definitely very white, but it's even though his actions are evil, his motivations in of itself doesn't seem as evil to me. It seems very selfish. And the problem here, the reason why he's acting evilly is that he he sees himself or his kin, at the very least, as being more important than the lives and cultures of other people versus Alatsue and her family seeing themselves as important and proud of their culture, right? And wanting it to live on and sharing their stories and their knowledge with one another so that it does live on, but also understanding that their culture does not give them the right to impose upon the world, or other people in any capacity. Yeah, and I think too, going off of that, it's not just this inherently ingrained thing in Ellie either. Ellie also pushes up against understanding 
where the limits of her power are and where the limits of using it responsibly are. Part of this book is sort of in some ways her in kind of an imaginary competition with herself in sixth grade and wanting from a very, I think, pure standpoint to really live up to sixth grade's legacy and to use all of the potential of her magic. And then learning over time that sometimes reaching one's full potential in that way centers oneself versus one's community and their needs. And that shows up in the book through this metaphor, I think, about Ellie's trip to the underworld where she saw all those whales and her not really understanding why her mother was quite so freaked out about that experience and then sets up some boundaries for her about using her magic. Because in Ellie's mind, she's like, well, I can just do it, right? Like I went to the underworld, I came back, everything was fine. So clearly I just like have this thing that not everybody else does and like everything's fine. And as she goes throughout the book, as she learns more and more about this magic and about the legacy of this magic and about the underworld in general, she learns that sixth grade also went to the underworld and also never came back. And she starts to see that while she has like the potential power to do really huge things like go to the underworld, it would be potentially irresponsible of her to use that power. At the very least, it's irresponsible of her to use it just like willy nilly for anything. And that when sixth grade made that decision, she was doing it at great personal sacrifice and also sacrifice for her family and for her nation and her culture. So it's not like Ellie just has this inherent Zen quality about her where she's like, this is exactly my place and how I understand my place in the world. Like it wasn't like she came into being knowing that it's that she's open to learning and to understanding and she's still figuring it out. And also figuring it out is going to be a lifelong project and a lifelong process. And like, that's fine. She's going to continue to learn more about her magic. She's going to continue to be able to hopefully pass it down one day, potentially to somebody she deems appropriate. And all of that are acts of of learning and understanding how to be a responsible steward. It's not like she came into the world and was immediately like, yes, this is exactly how you use this power. She's on a journey of understanding about it. Yeah, thank you for highlighting that for me, Maggie, because I didn't catch that during my read. But you're completely right that this whole book is really philosophically, I think, decentering the individual, even though we're following individual characters and decentering in some ways, individual responsibility by pointing out values and and cultures and different ways of thinking as a means for acting more responsibly, being a more responsible individual. One of the other characters that we see with power in this story is Gregory, Trevor's little son, and he's a baby. And he is actually the person who ends up bringing back a really vengeful impression of Trevor's spirit that isn't just bad for the people that harmed him, like Dr. Alderman, It's bad for the entire town, including children, and it's even dangerous to Ellie and her family and could be dangerous to humanity at large, right? And of course, like, no one's blaming him for bringing him back because he's a baby and he doesn't know anything, but it's not the power in of itself that can be defined as good or evil. And it's not like people are just intrinsically 
born without these selfish motivations that like Dr. Alderman and his family has. I think one of the interesting things that we see play out a little bit is Dr. Alderman's son, who is in third grade or something. He was one of Trevor's students. And he is a child who has also been embedded with some of this supremacist attitude to an extent because he believes that his father and his ancestors were incredibly good people who were doing the right things for their community. But not once do we see Ellie kind of cringe or demonize him, you know? Like she sees, she can see through the stories that he's been told and she can identify this story freaks me out because what he's saying means that it means that his ancestors were responsible for killing a lot of indigenous people in Massachusetts. And and we see that play out more, but not once is Brett ever demonized because Brett is a child who has been fed these really problematic stories. And we can see the effects of that from his father, right? Who is an adult and has acted on these problematic stories and then imposed his will and violence. And I just felt like that was a really interesting choice as I'm sitting here in my everyday trying to grapple with white supremacy and what that means and how these values are passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, for sure. And it's also interesting, too, because at the end of the novel, Ellie does use Brett as a bargaining piece against Dr. Aldman. (laughs) But it's because she knows that Dr. Aldman values his son, right? Aside from power, he values his specific family. And she's using and she uses that conversation as as a way to highlight the difference between the fact that he's concerned about his direct descendant and she and her family is concerned about everybody and the well-being of everybody in that same way. I think, too, the thing about Gregory is that Gregory is also very powerful. You know, he brings back the shade of Trevor. It's an accident. He's a baby. He crawls to his father. It is what it is. But the reason nobody really freaks out about that is because they have a community system in place to be able to deal with that, right? So it's also about the understanding of there is also community responsibility in all of us to knowing that not everybody is going to be able to make the perfect choice every single time. and. What systems do we have in place to mitigate bad things when they happen? When power is potentially misused for one reason or another, whether because somebody thought they were making the right choice or because we've got this really powerful baby on our hands who's like six months old and doing his thing. There are systems in place to to contend with that versus the isolation, again, of the Aldmans who just have themselves to rely on. And are taking this one warped story from generation to generation without any outside perspective. Which is also interesting because Ellie's family is charged with keeping this secret, right? It is a family secret of how to wake the dead. In theory, anybody could do it, but her family owns the knowledge. But still understanding that just because one is the steward of knowledge and has been given knowledge, you still need to be able to openly talk about and share ways in which that that knowledge affects others, even if you aren't necessarily keeping the secret away. And that's one of those balances that she and her family strike to be able to make sure that they can deal with issues like this when they arise, you know, and that they're sort of kind of getting community feedback from multiple venues, even if exactly how the power works is still 
a piece of knowledge that belongs to and is just appropriate to them. I want to know what you make of the townspeople from Dr. Aldman's town, because as you pointed out, there is some sort of isolation there, but it's not just Dr. Aldman and his family. Like they're the ones passing down secret knowledge, but their entire community is complicit in it and benefits from it. Even the children, which is why Trevor's spirit is like, does not feel bad about killing a bunch of spelling bee champions from the second grade. Even though Latsue is like, come on, please don't kill children. So yeah, I want to, I want to know how that fits. Like if you, how, how you see that fitting into this metaphor of white supremacy beyond just complicity and what the differences are between Latsue and her community, which we really don't see much of beyond like the elder and beyond her direct family. I think that to me, it's about questioning power and questioning authority. Ellie is on this constant journey to better understand her power and her family lineage. And she's got all of this context. Whereas I think the very specific complicity of the villagers is not necessarily always questioning how and why we're getting certain places that benefit us. And on top of that, for those who do know, just kind of being like, well, this is an okay sacrifice because this benefits me and my family. I think it kind of still is the isolationism in some ways, because at the end of the day, I'm sure all of those people are making that choice because it's better for them and their family and they want their family specifically to get ahead. And I think that that narrative is one that really dominates white America from multiple class perspectives of this idea of anything to make sure that my kids have a better life than I do, anything to make sure that my family gets ahead versus this idea of context and understanding what everybody's context is at least a little bit so that you can place yourself in a larger tapestry and a larger narrative. I think that that's the difference. And I think that that is in many ways, the very specific complicity that we see in the villagers in Dr. Altman's town. Thank you for that. I think that's a great answer. That fits my, my belief system. So plus check. Is there anything else about this book that you really wanted to explore, Maggie? I don't know that I necessarily want to do a deep dive in it, but something we haven't talked about is the fact that this book really normalizes death and the fact that death happens to all of us and that death can come from multiple different places and thinking about how to accept loss. And I think it does it in a really beautiful and really accessible way for teenagers of thinking about the fact that loss is going to be an eventuality in your life. For Ellie, it's her dog Kirby, who she's eventually able to call back. But then at the end of the novel, thinks she's lost forever. He's gone for months and months and months after this final showdown in the underworld. She can't call him back. He eventually does come back, but he kind of comes back after she stops needing him so specifically. She gets another dog. She's moving on with her life. And once she's found actual acceptance of his death, she's able to bring him back again. And I think that that's a really important story for kids. I think, And I think that that's a really important story to be able to give to a teenager and say, death is inevitable, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a soul-consuming, soul-crushing experience. And there's ways that you can find acceptance and beauty even in that sorrow. And this is kind of the natural order of things and that everything dies. 
so yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there because it is, it's such a large part of what Ellie does with her magic that I just wanted to, I don't know if you have any extra thoughts about that, but I, I thought I'd throw it out there. That's definitely an important part of the book. I think I have a hard time analyzing it. I don't have like, I don't have much to say about it, I guess. I thought the dog thing was interesting. I thought seeing Ellie's relationship with this dog, which in some ways kind of serves as like, even though he's real in the story, kind of like an imaginary friend or like a crutch was interesting. And I thought it was important too that we had that time where she wasn't attached to Kirby, where she had learned to move on with her life, even though she would always grieve Kirby and his death. But yeah. I don't have any intelligent thoughts about it. Yeah, I don't think I do either. I think that that's all I've got on this book, Harmony. Is there anything else that you want to dive in about? No, I think I'm good. Do we know what we're talking about next week? I think next week is going to be a fun episode. Um, So stay tuned for that. Oh, no, no, it's not going to be a fun episode. Actually, I know what next week is going to be. Next week mm-hmm. is going to be about communism. Yeah, Harmony and I are reading two essays or one essay from a book called Left of Karl Marx. We're going to talk a a lot about the exploitation of of women and workers and kind of those overlapping themes in feminism. It explores the life of Claudia Jones and it's written by Carol Boyce Davies. And we're excited. It's apparently very academic, which is why we're not reading the whole book because we're just, we're just lay people. (laughs) Is that all for now, folks? That's all for now, folks. Next week is the last episode of our season. So make sure you tune in because we're going out with a bang. Goodbye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.